0: It appeared, at least to them, that the men had become quite satisfied with watching TV or playing checkers together and had lost their sense of adventure and romance. With that in mind, one widow said to the other, What can we do to get their attention? She said, I would bet that we could take off all our clothes and run naked down the middle of the hallway and they wouldn't even notice and the other one said, well, let's find out. What do we got to lose? So off goes the clothes, and shoom, down the hall goes these two ladies. And they are just running, just stark naked down the hallway. They passed two guys who were playing checkers. The one guy looks up, looks at the other guy, said, did you just see that? He said, yeah, I just saw that. He said, what was that? He goes, I'm not sure. But whatever it was, sure needed some ironing. You know, and the point is this. There are, there are many things in life that require a closer look before coming to any conclusions. The last time we were together on a much more serious note as an introduction to our new series, we examined a passage in which Jesus warns that things aren't always as they may appear. And if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 7. And we will pick up on this passage uh, to once again introduce our passage and topic for today. But in Matthew chapter 7, starting with verse 13, we read these words of warning. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and few are those who find it. It says, beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? It says, even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then, you will know them by their fruits. In this very sobering passage, the Lord Jesus Christ warns of two truths. First, which we examined in great detail in the last time we were together, that there are those who think they have a relationship with God, and they don't. And that deception leads one straight to hell. He He tells us that we can know by objective, measurable evidence. We can know with certainty, he says, by the fruit, whether this deception has blinded even ourselves or those around us. If you recall from 1 Timothy, the introduction, there are five characteristics that are true of a genuine, or the real deal as I called it, a genuine believer. We saw first that they're saving faith. You know, in order to have saving faith, one must come to repent of their sin. The Bible says it's God's command for every man that they would repent of sin and turn from sin and turn to God. To recognize that we've fallen short of the standards of God and His glory and to turn from sin and to turn to God. Genuine saving faith starts with that step of repentance. And we throw ourselves upon the mercy of God and we believe what he says we need to believe. And that is, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Believe upon his death upon the cross and the, and the resurrection that followed. The power of his resurrection and his death for your sin. And the Bible says, for those who have received him, to them he gives privilege to be called children of God. ...to those who believe in his name. There's no other way to come into a relationship with God... ...there's no other way to get to heaven... ...than by faith, through faith in Jesus Christ... ...by grace, we're saved through faith... ...and not of ourselves. The Bible is very clear that if that's true of your life... ...and you've come to that point of repentance... ...and turning from sin, turning to God... ...throwing yourself on God's mercy... ...the Bible says at that point that you're born again... ...you become a child of God... ...and then God has a specific, a very specific way... ...that he wants you and I to live as his children... The second thing that we saw was continuing obedience, that a person who has genuinely come to faith will continue to walk in obedience as God requires of our life. In fact, in this passage, you'll notice that in verse 21, it says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but notice, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Those who continue to walk in obedience, Jesus said, if you genuinely and truly love me, which is the greatest commandment, that you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. He says, if you truly love me, you'll walk in obedience, you'll obey my commandments. Continued obedience is a genuine evidence or fruit of a person who has come to faith in Christ and is a child of God. In fact, in 1 John 2, we're told that there were many who went out from among the assembly because the Bible says they were not one of us. It was necessary that they went out from us, because it was hard to tell the difference sometimes between those who were the real deal and those who only profess but are not possessors of eternal life. They went out from among us. In Mark chapter four, in the Sower and the Seed," Jesus said that there were many who received the word gladly, but when persecution came along, that they fell away. that then when their, when their faith was put to the test, this faith that they say that they had, when it was put to the test, they fell away. Oh no, I'm sorry, I'm not interested anymore. When there was a price to be paid, it separated those who were genuine from those who were not. You know, in Timothy's life, we'll see that Timothy is a man who had sincere faith, a faith without hypocrisy. And it was demonstrated by the fact that he, as Apostle Paul, both gave their lives for the cause of Christ. They were faithful to the end. I fought the good fight. I finished the course. I've kept the faith. The third thing was humble service, that we turn from serving ourselves or from idols, as it says in the, the, the account of the Thessalonians, that they turn from serving idols to serve the living God. A real test of whether you are, not, whether you are truly a child of God is if you've got to the point where you realize it's not God's will, not your will that will be done, but God's will, that we live to serve Him. Sound doctrine also, that it, it, it's denoting that we are devoted to the teaching of the Word of God that we love the Word of God. It says that the first church, those who had came to faith, those who were added to the church on Pentecost in Acts 2.42, which we just completed that study, was that they were devoted continually, the present tense continually, to the apostles' teaching and other things that were the footprint of the church, but sound doctrine, which led to courageous conviction. They weren't conformed to this world... ...but they were transformed... ...as we all should be... ...by the renewing of our mind... ...that we would know what the will of God is... ...that which is good and acceptable and perfect. So just as we can know that we are children of God... ...and that others may not be... ...based on the lack of evidence... ...Jesus also warned that false prophets and teachers... ...are just as much a reality... ...and that they too can be known... ...by objective, measurable evidence... ...what Jesus says... Is fruit. You will know them by their fruits. He says, Beware of the false teachers, false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Just as it is difficult to determine at times who is a genuine child of God, it is equally as difficult at times to determine who is a legitimate, genuine teacher of God's truth and who are those who are. You know, ...dressed up on the outside in sheep's clothing... ...but inwardly are ravenous wolves. But the good news is this... ...that we can know and identify those... ...who God says beware of by their fruits. And in 1 Timothy we're going to learn how to... ...as we learn how to recognize a genuine believer... ...today we're going how to learn how to recognize a false teacher... So if you've got your Bibles, turn to 1 Timothy chapter 1, where there will be four things that Paul points out, four truths that will help us identify a false teacher. In 1 Timothy chapter 1, we'll start with verse 3 through 11, Paul writes to Timothy warning him about those in his midst that are false teachers. In this passage, there are four things that Paul identifies for, T, uh, for Timothy as they relate to the problem of identifying those who are false teachers. He says in verse 3, As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus in order that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God which is by faith. Says, but the goal of our instruction is love, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they didn 't understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous man, but for those who are lawless and rebellious. For the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, and immoral men, and homosexuals, and kidnappers, and liars, and perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted and so the first thing that we notice that uh, Paul relates to Timothy as it, um, as it has to do with the issue of false teachers is the problem of what we'll call the problem of confrontation. And the problem of confrontation means simply this. That as one reads through First and Second Timothy, it becomes apparent that Timothy, like many of us, did not look forward to confrontation. He didn't relish the idea of being in such a position to confront those elders, pastors, teachers who are guilty of false teaching. The question you have to ask is why was Timothy so hesitant? And the wonderful thing about God's word is we read it and study it. We get a portrait of who Timothy was. Timothy, we learn, is a young man who was, very, it was inexperienced in these matters, as you can imagine. He was a young man who was inexperienced. The Bible tells us that he had a physical affliction, a stomach ailment. Uh, perhaps, as we'll see, that maybe it was nerves, maybe it was an ulcer, you know, maybe he took this stuff to heart in the point that, you know, it got to him personally. But the Bible tells us that he was a timid man. And because of the calling of God in his life where he was to confront those who were teaching false doctrine, he recognized, as we all do, that confrontation's not a fun thing. And it always concerns me when I meet somebody who enjoys confrontation. Uh, because there are many times where we confront when confrontation is not necessary. The other side of it is there are times where we need to confront, but our lack of courage in doing so uh, prohibits us from doing that. See, and Timothy needed the clear counsel of the word of God to give him strength and direction as to what his calling was all about as far as the teaching ministry that God had given him. We all need the clarity of God's word to give us the strength that we need and the courage to do that which God has called us to do i give you a personal illustration, 20 years ago, um, I was 25 years old, and I was asked at that time to teach the Rams Bible study, and to do chapels, and to do, you know, all that was involved in that, and at 25 years of age, the majority of people were about the same age as me, and many were older than me, and uh, they are bigger than me, and uh, that I noticed right off the bat. And uh, the fact that they were bigger than me, stronger than me, they could be a little more intimidating. And the, and the fact that they had a passion and a, and a love for sin presented somewhat of a problem when it came to confronting with the word of God and the truth of God. And there were times in my life where I became hesitant on, you know what, wow, I know that if I explain this passage as it's written and what it means that this is going to be really fun tonight. And in fact, one of those Bibles took place when the wings of this, uh, this building were open and it was out to that side. And it was a passage that had to do with sexual immorality. And I remember the guys who were sitting there and just teaching the truth as far as sexual immorality was concerned. And some of them, man, I mean, it was like if, if you ever saw the movie Broadcast News where the guy just breaks out in the sweat and it just starts pouring out of him all over the place. Man, well, there were guys that were sitting there and literally there was a puddle of sweat underneath their chair. One guy said, I, "I said, hey, you know, it's good to have you here tonight because I've got to get out of here. I said, why? He goes, man, because this place is going to get hit by lightning in about two seconds. And I said, well, then on, let's see. Well, it's not me. It must be you. I'll step aside. And, uh, you know, in a joking way. But, 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 but one, one, of the, one of the moments of greatest intimidation in that ministry was I was at the South Coast Western Hotel. The Rams had a Monday night football game, so our chapel was in the afternoon. I got on the elevator and as I was getting in the elevator, someone stuck their hand and held it open and walked in, walk ele- into the elevator was Reggie Jackson, who was playing for the Angels at the time. Reggie Jackson, for those of you who don't know, was a baseball player who was the self-proclaimed straw that, that stirred the drink in New York City when he played for the Yankees. And he walked into the elevator and he had been invited by one of the guys who played for the Rams. And he had walked into the elevator and uh, we were going upstairs and he looked at me and said, uh, are you going to chapel? I said, yeah. And then he looked at the Bible and said, are you teaching chapel? And I said, yeah. He goes, man, you know what, I couldn't do that. And I'm thinking, you know what, neither can I. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, man. And the, So w- w- we get up into the room. And uh, as we get up into the room, we, we meet in, the, in just one of the uh, like meeting rooms that you have in a hotel. And, and they'll have a meeting room that's there. And so I was standing in front of the room and the guys were all there. And Reggie Jackson came like this. sat in the front of the room, sat no more than two feet from my face. And so then I'm thinking, God, I can't do this. And that was the first time that God clearly reminded me that I was right once in my life. You can't do this, but I can do this through you. Teach the Word. Preach the Gospel. Declare my truth. And that was a turning point I believe in the ministry that God had given me to stay focused on teaching the Word of God. I have had people ask me subsequent to that, you don't go into a locker room with a Bible and just teach a passage, do you? I said, absolutely. So why would a guy on a baseball team want to come to hear somebody teach the Bible? Why would a guy on a hockey team with the Ducks want to come and have somebody just explain a Bible passage to them? I said, man, you know what? Because it's the power of God's word. You know, to make a copy of it and hand it out and say, I'm just going to explain this passage. I'll tell you what, it frees me from having to worry about what I need to do and what I need to say. See, because it's the word of God that contains all the power. It's the spirit of God using the word of God to draw men and women to the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not fancy words or persuasive speech or manner of anything else. We can be passionate, we can be excited about the Word of God, but never misunderstand, it's not the passion or the excitement or the enthusiasm of a speaker that changes hearts. It's the Word of God with the Spirit of God who reaches the hearts of men. And God reminded me of that that day and has continued to keep me focused on that truth ever since. For God reminded me, as Paul wanted to remind Timothy, not to neglect the gift that he has given me, to use it for his purposes and for his glory, to live to please God and not live to please men. See, Paul reminded Timothy of the importance of confronting these teachers with the words that I urge you, or with the word urge. Remember, I urge, I beg you, I implore you. If you look at verse 3 again, I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia to remain on at Ephesus. I urged you. There's a sense of urgency and importance in making sure that we never forget that it's the Word of God and the power of God. In His Word, the living active, sharper than any two-edged sword, powerful Word of God that reaches the hearts of men. He says, I urged you. There's a sense of urgency. I beg you. I implore you. It's the same word that Paul used as he wrote to the Romans where he says, Therefore, I urge you. I beseech you by the mercies of God. I urge you by the mercies of God. And he goes on to talk about not being conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. He says, "I urge you." There's a sense of urgency that he had, and the purpose that we see here. he says very clearly, "I urge you upon my departure that you remain on at Ephesus. Why did I leave you there? In order that it's a purpose statement. There is a purpose that was, le- that was there. It says, "In order that you may instruct, which has to do with teaching. 32 times in the pastoral epistles of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus The words teaching, doctrine, instruction, to teach, taught, are used The emphasis is very clear And that has to do with the power of teaching and preaching the word of God Don't ever forget why you're there Why he was there was to teach or instruct In fact, the word was to command certain men to command certain men, the primary ministry of a pastor or elder is to preach and to pray. That is very clear from Acts chapter 6. The primary calling of a pastor is to preach the word of God and pray for the congregation, the flock. Acts 2.42, as we said, where the church was devoted to the apostles' teaching. It's by, it's by the preaching and teaching of God's truth that lies or false teaching can be exposed. I'll give you an example. I remember a time in my life when people would knock on the door and they would try to tell me about what they believed. And there were many times in my life where when you listen to something that somebody said, you go, that sounds good. You know what? It no longer sounds good. And I'll tell you why. Because I know the truth. And when you know the truth, it sets you free from deception. When you know the truth, the first thing that happens when someone tries to sell you on something is that immediately the Spirit of God, if you're informed and knowledgeable and you've spent time in the Word of God, then the first thing the Spirit of God does is say, No, that directly contradicts this. It doesn't sound good anymore. Because the truth is the standard by which we measure everything that's said and done certain men. He identifies that there were a few, a few men who were false teachers. And if you recall from the last time we were together... ...I had mentioned that you know churches never got together... ...in buildings like this until the 3rd century. So there were small assemblies of believers... ...that met all throughout Ephesus in homes. And depending on the size of the home... ...would be the size that could accommodate the group. But the point was... ...there were literally hundreds of pastor-teachers... ...for each of those small congregations. And what he was saying was... ...you know what, not all of them... ...not even most of them... ...but a few of them were wrong before God... ...and were teaching that which is opposed... To the word of God. So Timothy was left behind to command those, a sense of authority, he was given authority by God to command those to stop teaching that which is wrong before God. It is a command, it wasn't an option. Timothy had been given the authority of God to go to these men and say, what you're teaching is wrong, stop it. And he would have a basis to show them the truth. They were teaching strange doctrines. Literally, it means to teach differently or in a different way. That means using a different method. What's interesting is we, we get in a lot of debates in, in the current culture about how one should teach the Word of God, the different methodology of teaching the Word of God. But one thing is very clear from this passage is that Paul was saying to Timothy, "...continue to teach in the same matter and, pa- matter and pattern by which you have seen me teach." And the Apostle Paul was very clear as he taught the word of God. He always, in his Jewish audiences, used the Old Testament scripture. He would explain the passage and then explain the doctrine that he was trying to get across to them. As the New Testament had become, uh, as it was being written, as it was being given, as it was, as it was, quote, evolving as far as the, the total text of Scripture, as God gave to the churches individually until we had the culmination of all the Bible, they would go and they would read a letter that was inspired by God to the Corinthians, to the Galatians, to the Ephesians. This is what we see happening here. And they would explain the text. They would explain the passage. They would explain the meaning of words. And that's the importance of leaving uh, with an understanding of what it means. Words mean something. God carefully chooses the words that he uses to explain his mind and help us to understand the mind of God. Words mean something. And we've got to get to the point in our culture where we stop saying that it can mean whatever we want it to mean to the person that's listening to it, because that's nonsense, that's rubbish. You cannot sit at a table and somebody call a glass a fork and a fork a glass. Certain things mean something, and we have to agree that they mean the same thing to all of us. It's not relativism. And in fact, if you look at 2 Timothy for a second, notice in chapter 1, verse 13, Paul says to teach in a manner that's consistent with the method that Paul had already given him. He says retain the standard, that's right there, that's the pattern. He says retain the standard, literally the pattern. Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Retain that standard, uh, standard literally that pattern. Just as God's truth is one, so there is only one way to teach it. And that is with no pretense, no human eloquence, uh, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't it just amazing? It's just miraculous when you think about it. How you can sit and listen to a passage of scripture explained... And go, man, that was, dy- that was dynamic. And the reason it was dynamic is it has, it has nothing to do with the person who's delivering it. It has everything to do with dynamis, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. It is dynamic because you sit there and oftentimes I have people come to me and say, did my wife or my husband call you and tell you because that was exactly what we're going through and I don't even know who you are. And the beauty of all that is this, then God gets all the credit because all things are open and laid bare to Him to whom we have to do. It's the power of God, not me. Now some of you get mad at me, upset with me or the speaker because you don't like what was just said and I say to you, tough. Because you don't have a problem with me, your problem is with God and if I were you I'd get right with God because this isn't about me and you. It just isn't, unless it's specifically about me and you, and then that's a different issue. But in general, it's not about me and you. It's about you and God. And God knows your heart, and he knows what you're doing, he knows what's going on, and the preaching of God's word, coupled with the power of the Holy Spirit, reaches us right where we are. It separates bone from marrow, man. It's able to just, boom, hit us right where we're at. Then we got a choice to make. Are we going to get right with God, or are we going to continue to live in rebellion against him? See, He was saying that those who were coming, they were teaching in a different manner. He's saying there's only one way to teach it. No pretense, no human eloquence, but in the power of the Holy Spirit. In the early church, the pattern or standard was quite quite clear. Believers were taught the word of God. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The message of basic Christian doctrines. And unfortunately, in many churches today, the pulpit and the choir loft are places for entertainment, not enlightenment nor enrichment. And we will talk about that very clearly in his warnings to Timothy as to the day that was coming, which is here now as it was then, where men would accumulate for themselves teachers who would tickle their ears and make them feel better about their sin. And God says, don't you fall into that trap. And it's an easy trap to fall in if we're intimidated by men rather than live to please God. Strange doctrines. What's interesting about it, the evidence of of the strange doctrines in this particular case as we'll see it, was that it created speculation and it didn't answer questions. It raised more questions. And one thing about false teaching that you'll find is it raises more questions than it gives answers for questions that you already have. Speculation. More questions than answers. It says, certain men not to teach strange doctrines nor pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which at the time was a common practice and which was one of the very specific false teaching that was going on. Jewish people would use genealogies as a means to say, but I trace my family back to so-and-so, and therefore it's kind of like I'm in based on my genealogy or my heritage or my family background. Let me just tell you one more time, as I've mentioned many times, God doesn't have grandchildren. You're either a child of God or you're not. You're not in because of your family heritage. And there were those who were teaching others, saying, "You're okay because your mother or father were godly people. You know, this was a, this was a godly person. You can go back far enough in your lineage or your heritage, and it's okay. You're covered by that. And that's not and that's nonsense. And it is a lie from the pit of hell. The speculation was there because the the, con- the contrast to that was by the administration of God by faith. Notice he says then. They were speculating rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. In Acts 2021, 20, Paul writes to the to, to the, to the uh, Ephesians that were there, he tells them, he says, that God's command, as he did in Athens, the same as Ephesus, is that there was repentance towards God, listen, and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the message of the gospel. Repentance towards God. ...and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. The focus is on God's saving plan. The heresy of false teachers... ...strikes a blow at the gospel of saving faith. Their teaching leads others to believe... ...that it is a system of works... ...or human, human efforts that can save. Let me be very clear about this... ...because I don't want to raise any speculations... ...or allow you to leave with any unanswered question. The clarity and the conciseness of God's word says this... And this, very simply, all the myriad religions of the world fall into one of two categories. There is a religion of divine accomplishment, that God in Christ accomplished salvation apart from human efforts. That is the Christian gospel. That is the Christian gospel, that God in Christ accomplished salvation apart from any of our efforts. The other category is human achievement where men attempt to gain salvation by their own efforts or their own good deeds. By their good deeds, by their ceremonies, by their rituals, every other religion to one extent or another fits into this category. You either accept and believe that God has done it and accomplished all or that you can somehow work your way into God's presence. I'll give you a very simple summation of all of it. I heard recently that the Muslim faith, Islam, Islam, is a religion where men give up their sons in order to find Allah's acceptance. And Christianity, very clearly, is a religion where God so loved the world that He gave up His Son in order that whoever would believe in Him would find God's forgiveness and His acceptance. And it clearly summarizes the worldview as to how to get to God. False teachers will try to convince those that they can work their way to heaven, that they can, through human effort, somehow please a holy and a righteous God. And the Bible says clearly that's impossible to do. There's only one way to heaven. Jesus said it best, I am the way, the truth and the life, and no man comes unto the Father but through me. The second problem that we'll see is a problem of motivation. What is it that motivates the heart of false teachers. Notice in verses 5-7, uh, it says, But the goal of our instruction, as opposed to the, the uh, goal of false teaching, says, But the goal of our instruction is love, from a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion. Wanting to be teachers of the law even though they don't understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. We'll notice the word but equals a contrast. And so we have a contrast between two types of people. One are false teachers and those who are the real deal, genuine teachers who represent the truth of God's word. The contrast is this. As opposed to the goal of false teachers, the goal of those who are teaching truth, the goal is always love. The goal of teaching God's truth is love. And what I mean by that is this. The goal of our instruction is love. The greatest commandment, as I've mentioned, is that you and I would love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. The goal of teaching the Word of God should be to cause each and every one of us to grow in a deeper, more loving relationship with the God who gave us His Son as our Saviour. The teaching of God's truth draws us closer to God. The teaching of those who teach falsely draws us further away from God. The teaching of God's truth draws us closer to God in love. And also, the greatest, the second is, just like it, that we love our neighbor as ourself. And in those two commandments, all of God's laws are summarized. That we love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And that we love our neighbor as ourself. Selfless love. 1 Corinthians 13, the love of choice, agape love, a volitional choice that we make that we will put the needs of others ahead of our own self. The goal of our instruction is that we would love one another. Jesus said it best, that they'll know you're my disciples. How? Because of your love for one another. Your selflessness and your humility in serving others is the goal of godly instruction. He says that it would be out of a pure heart. You know, pure heart is such a rich term throughout the Old Testament. You know, as we read it, we see the psalmist says, Who may ascend into the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in His holy place? Psalm 24.3 says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart before God. After his sin with Bathsheba, David cried out in Psalm 51 to God, Create in me, O Lord, a pure heart, a clean heart. Psalm 73, surely good is, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Titus 3.5 says the only way that you and I can ever have a pure heart is that God would wash it from above with the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit and the life of a repentant sinner who comes to faith in Christ. That is when our heart is made pure before God. A pure heart. The goal of our instruction is love and how we, we, we convince, so to speak, others to love one another is that our hearts are pure before God. We can only love as God loves, that agape love, when we know love, how? By this, that even when we were sinners, Christ died for us. And yet the only way that we know love is by the fact that God first loved us. It all starts with God, His love for us, our acceptance of His love, His presence in our heart, and overflow of His love towards others. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. That love of God that resides in the heart of the believer is a sign of a genuine Christian and also separates false teaching from that which is pure. A good conscience before God has to do with a real accountability before God that we understand that. A sincere faith, the word sincere means without hypocrisy, without wax. It's the real deal. We know that Timothy was a man of sincere faith. What you see is what you get. His lips were indicative of his life. His life was indicative of his lips. His tongue of his shoe and the tongue of his mouth went in the same direction. There was no sense of hypocrisy in in his life there is nothing more confusing to an unbelieving world than to listen to a christian profess to be a christian and live like someone who's not then we better examine ourselves to make sure that we're truly in the faith because you can profess to be a christian as we're learning from these passages and you know what and never have come to faith in christ and that's why you live the way you live because there's nothing different about your life If any man's in Christ, he's new. All things pass away, all things become new. Now, granted, there's a growing process, but there better be some signs that you're moving into a direction that's conformed into the image of Christ, or you better examine yourself because you're kidding yourself and you're on the way to hell. The last thing is there were those who strayed from it. The word stray means to miss it, to turn from it. False teachers had dirty hearts. They were uncleansed by the gospel. They were guilty guilty condemning consciences. They were triggered by their impure hearts. They were hypocritical in their faith. What they said on the outside wasn't true of their heart. Jesus said it best when he would go to them and say, You know what? You may fool everybody else, but you can't fool God. You're whitewashed on the outside, but inside your filthy, dirty sepulchre, you're a dead man spiritually. And I know that. As the God of the universe, I know your heart. You can sit in church. You can pray prayers. You can read a Bible. You can walk down front. You can go to be baptized. You can do all the things externally that the world thinks it needs to do to get right with God. But he says, you know what? But I know your heart. And it has not been made pure. It hasn't been washed. It hasn't been regenerated. You haven't been born again from above. And you're far from God. Though man would be fooled by what we see, God's not. See, they strayed from that. And the reason for it is this. They wanted to be teachers of the law. And the reason they wanted to be teachers of the law in Matthew 23 that we're told is because, you know why? Because they got recognition from people. They like to be at the head of the table. They like to be recognized for their spiritual leadership. They like people coming to them to ask spiritual questions. They like people to depend upon them. And let me tell you something, that a genuine teacher of the word of God, our goal is always that you become less dependent on men and more dependent upon God. I love the day when people don't come and ask me the same question because they've gone to the Word and they've begun to grow in their relationship with God and I'm no longer needed to answer questions in their life because God, in the presence of His Holy Spirit, as they search the Word of God, answers that question for them. It doesn't mean that there's not safety in a multitude of counselors. It doesn't mean that iron shouldn't sharpen iron. All those things are true. But you know what? We have to stop depending on other people in our relationship with God and get into the Word and trust God and His Holy Spirit's presence in our life so that we grow closer to him and we become those who begin to disciple others as they are just born again, children of God that need help along the way. We are always to be reproducing. It breaks my heart to see people who for 20 years have the same problem in their life because they won't trust God in his word and act and live in obedience to God. It's nonsense. Even Paul got to the point in the city of Corinth where he said, you know what, that's it. Your blood is on your own hands because I have shared the truth with you and you continually to deny the truth and live in sin and disobedience before God. You are wasting my time because there are others whom I can help. J. Vernon McGee had the greatest prayer that I'll never forget. He used to say every morning he'd wake up and he'd pray, God, there are two people that are going to come into my life today. There are going to be people that you want me to help and there are going to be people who want to hurt me. He said, God, just teach me to know the difference between the two. That's all. Because you can't help people who don't want to help themselves by being obedient to the word of God. They strayed from it. They wanted. They were in it for the money, basically. They were in it for the money. It was a powerful position in their culture and their society. It was a job, and that's all that it was. They liked the recognition. They were in it for the money. They had, unhel- they, they had impure motives before God because their hearts were wrong before God. And we need to recognize and understand that there are still those to this day who are in it for other things than to draw people closer in their walk with God and a love for God and His people. It's also a problem that he said of Timothy of understanding. I want you to notice this. It's just fascinating when you see it. Notice what it says here. They wanted to be teachers of the law in verse 7, even though they don't understand either what they're saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. False teachers display not only an arrogance in that they want people to look up to them and they want to lord over their authority over others, but they also demonstrate their ignorance. And what I mean by ignorance is it's a lack of knowledge. They wanted to be teachers of the law even though they didn't even understand what the law taught. And as I read through the passage, I was immediately reminded of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. If you remember when Jesus, Nicodemus went to Jesus, Jesus began to teach him spiritual truth. And at one point, he looked at him and said, You don't understand these things, and you are the teacher of all of Israel? Whoa! I added that. But, but, that's, I mean, but that's what he was saying. He goes, man... What he's saying is all these people come to you, you enjoy the position of authority, you enjoy people coming to ask you questions, you enjoy the livelihood that you get from being a teacher, you enjoy all the perks and benefits, and you are even, you're ignorant of God's truth. What are you telling these people? Garbage in, garbage out. And what's sad about it is, not only were, were, were they ignorant, but they were confident in their ignorance. Confidently ignorant. Could you imagine? It says that they made confident assertions. How frightening is that? That those who want to be teachers have a stricter judgment and accountability before God. It is not a position to take lightly. Everything that I say has an eternal significance to it. And you cannot take that lightly. But the confidence that I have is based upon the Word of God and not on my own opinions or what I think or how I feel, whether I like it or not. There are many times that I study and I read through the Word of God and frankly, I don't like what God says because I'm guilty. And I need to agree with God, confess my sin, repent, turn from it, and do what is right before God. I, like anyone else, can read the Bible and look for something that will validate what I want it to say. But we've got to go in quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. Prepare to receive God's truth. And what God says, that's it. See, the difference between God's Word and false teaching is that God's Word leaves us with a very clear understanding of God's mind and God's heart and God's will and God's direction. We may not like it, but we understand what is being said. You know, it's bad enough to be ignorant, but to be dogmatic about ignorance is the absolute epitome of a prideful heart. We've all seen that. We all go through it in our own homes, in our own relationships. You know, you say something, and you know, and you know. I mean, there have been times where I would would debate with my wife, Linda. I would debate with her, even after halfway into the debate, knowing that she's right and I'm wrong. That's the worst place to be in life. Going down that road where you are just so trenched in that you're right, and then you know you go, Whoa, I'm wrong. And now I gotta admit it. But if I admit it, so you' go like and then be like, don't ever question me again. So, you know, you go, Oh man, you know, I'm right, you're wrong, and be gentle. That's all he can do. There's a point where you've got to do that. See, and, and what were they ignorant about? They were confidently asserting their ignorance as to the purpose of the law. And this is very important that we clearly understand the purpose of God's law. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. There's a two-fold purpose of the law of, laws of, the law of God. Acts Romans chapter 3. We will see clearly the purpose of God's law. Acts 3, verses 19 and 20. Now, we know with confidence. What I say, Romans 3? Are you listening to me? Good. Why didn't more of you ask? What's going on out there? Romans 3. We were in Acts so long, and I can't get it out of my mind. But it's a great bridge to what we're studying. Romans 3, chapter, Romans chapter 3, verse 19 and 20. Now, we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. That every mouth may be closed, and all the world may become accountable to God, because by the works of the law no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. We can tell people, hey, you know what? All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. None are righteous, no, not one. That's what the word of God says. We all, like sheep, have gone astray from God. We're all in rebellion against God. We can tell people that, but the way that we use the law to help them understand that is to say this. Are you perfect? Because God's standard is perfection. God is a holy, perfect, just, righteous God. And I haven't met anybody yet who will say, I'm perfect. They'll say, well, I'm better than other people, and they'll begin to do that kind of thing, but that's not the question. The question is, are you perfect? And when they him-haun around about it, all you have to do is say, do you love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength? Have you always honored your mother and your father? Have you ever lied? Have you ever cheated? Have you ever stolen? Have you ever committed an act of sexual immorality, which is all sex outside heterosexual marriage is sin before God? Have you ever wanted something that somebody else had? Whether it was their wife or their girlfriend, their boyfriend, their house, their car, their education, their position at work. Have you ever been guilty of any of those things? And inevitably, people say, well, well, yeah, of course. That's the point. God's made his case. You are a sinner. And by the law, every mouth should at that point say, "I, I have no excuse. No buts about it. No ands, ifs, or buts. But you don't understand I lie because of this. No, don't, no, wait. Just shut your mouth. Have you ever, as your children were growing up or even now, where they are guilty of something and they always want to follow up the guilt, but we always have, we had a no buts clause in in our home. It was a no buts clause. Look, did you do it? Yes, but, no buts. A no but clause. Did you do it? Yes, but, no buts. Did you do it? Yes. But? No buts. Did you do it? Yes. Good. Now we're getting somewhere. You know what I mean? It's like as long as you keep rationalizing and it, there's no acceptance of guilt or responsibility. Did you do it? Yes. That's it. No more. So you are guilty and condemned before God. So said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have ever everlasting life. For God didn't send a son into the world to condemn it. Why? Because this world's condemned already. We're all condemned. Alright, now I'm guilty before God. Now what do I do? Well, the purpose of the law, go to Galatians chapter 3, was not only to help us know and understand from God's vantage point how guilty we were and are, but it takes it one step further. Galatians 3:24 through 25. It says therefore the law has become our tutor teacher to lead us to Christ that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come we are no longer under a tutor for you're all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. The twofold purpose of the law, simply put, was to help men understand that we're guilty before God, to shut us up so that we don't make excuses and justify and rationalize it, so that we would accept the responsibility in what God says, and that we would then cry out to God, God, what do I need to do now to be saved from the condemnation that comes with sin? He says, good, now you need to turn to my son, my perfect and holy son, who I have given up for you because I love you. If you would believe in Him, His death on the cross in your behalf, the power of His resurrection, then you will be called a child of God to those who believe in His name. By grace you've been saved through faith and not of yourselves. It is a gift from God so that none of us can boast before God when we stand before His presence. See, when the law is taught correctly, it always reveals sin to the unbelievers and it leads that person to the only Savior for God's judgment. The only place where forgiveness and mercy can be found. The law always leads people to the foot of the cross and to the empty tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ. False teachers try to put Christians in bondage to a new set of regulations and demands. We are no longer under the law. For those of us who have come to faith in Christ, we are under grace. And you cannot legislate, so to speak, morality because God said this, There will be a day coming and is now here where you put your faith and trust in my son and I will write those laws upon your heart. And you will want to live a life pleasing to me because my spirit lives within you and it is an outworking of what I did when you came to faith and threw yourself upon my mercy and trusted in my son. You cannot legislate. The law is to lead people to Christ Recognize sin, respond to the Savior. Those who teach falsely add to the burden, and we need to be under the burden anymore, for it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. Lastly, and we'll close with this, is that the whole the whole issue of confronting false teachers has to do with stewardship, and it says that you know what he it says it's by the glorious gospel that we've been given. Paul said that the glorious gospel of the blessed God was committed to his trust. It is a sacred trust. It's a matter of stewardship. It has to do with the fact that the treasures and the insights from God's word... ...that are given to us, are given to us so that we may share them with others. The purpose of understanding the law is to share the law... ...as a basis to help people see their guilt before God. And then the law is used to, to draw them to the only Savior that God has given man. There's no other name under heaven by which can be sa- men can be saved... ...than the Lord Jesus Christ... The law, since it shows men their sin, is a necessary part of the gospel. And it's important that we recognize and understand that. You know, if there's no bad news that men are lost sinners, there could be no good news of Christ's redemption. If people do not realize that they're condemned before God, they will not cry out to God in mercy and seek his forgiveness. If I'm okay and you're okay, which is another false teaching from the pit of hell, then why would we go to God for anything... other than just when we need Him to kind of bail us out of something... but we have no sin that needs to be forgiven... we haven't offended Him whatsoever... why would I go and seek a Savior if there's nothing wrong with me... why would I go and ask for directions if I'm not lost? That's the purpose of the law. The gospel is glorious because it reveals God's glory... it reveals His attributes, who He is... and one of those attributes is holiness... which involves hatred of sin... Another attribute is justice, which demands punishment when the law is violated. That's the true gospel. If you violated God's law, then you deserve to be punished. If anybody violates law in our culture, they deserve to be punished. That's called justice. And it's because we're created in the image of God that we have a sense of justice, a sense of right or wrong. But God says, I will not punish you if you trust in Jesus' death upon the cross for your sin. God poured His wrath upon Christ on the cross so that He doesn't have to pour His wrath upon you or I who have come to faith in Him. It's glorious. It's beautiful when you realize it's been entrusted to us, all of God's people, who come to faith in Christ so that we can share it with others. It is a precious treasure given and entrusted to us so that we can use it For God's glory and towards his end. You cannot sit on it. You cannot keep quiet about it. You cannot keep it to yourself. It has been given to you to share with others. In closing, just as Jesus warned of false believers, he also warned of false teachers. He taught that both would be known by their fruit. We are called to be, as a friend of mine discussed, fruit inspectors. You know, we live in a world today where who are we to judge one another? You know what? Then call yourself a fruit inspector if you feel better about it. But the bottom line is is that we are called to be inspectors of fruit of one another and of those who teach. What's the checklist? How can we protect ourselves from such ravenous wolves in sheep's clothing? What do we look for? I will guarantee you that you will never hear anybody stand up before you and say, I just want to set the record straight, I'm a false teacher. I thought I'd share that with you right up front. Because it's going to be a little hard for you to know otherwise. You will never have somebody with a sign around their neck that says, false teacher, false teacher, false teacher. You will never have that. So we need to, be, we need to have ears that are in tune to the Spirit of God as we search the Word of God. Number one, how to identify a false teacher look at their understanding of Scripture. Is their teaching biblically sound? Or do they place extra-biblical teaching on a par with the Bible? Do they handle accurately the Word of Truth? I have heard people speak, and you have as well. And there's something that was just said, you're going to go, what? And the only way you can go kind of what was because you're familiar with the Word of God. You handle accurately the Word of Truth. And you kinda of go, you know what? Something I just said troubled, something was just said troubled me, it bothers me, and it forces you to go check the word of God. We need to be in a position to answer those questions, and to do so, we've got to become like the Berean Church, men and women who knew intimately the Word of God. And to be able to say instantly, that's not what God's Word says. That's not what the Bible teaches. Sounds good, but it's wrong. Second, Examine their goals. Do they seek through their teaching to create a love and an honoring and a glorifying of God through what they teach? Do they want you to become more dependent upon them than upon God? Do they want you to become more dependent upon God than them? Do they try to encourage a further walk with God and a love for God and a love for His Word and His standard that's laid out? To pursue... Or do they pursue self-love or material wealth or personal happiness rather than obedience to God? Do they teach the importance of a pure heart, a good conscience, and a non-hypocritical faith? Number three, are they humble, selfless, or does their teaching subtly promote themselves or their own agenda at the expense of the truth of God's Word? And lastly, do they teach the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ? Do they use the law as God intended to reveal sin and lead men and women to the only Savior? Or do they promote a system of works that can never save? Those who pass those checklists should be welcomed as brothers in Christ. Those who do not are to be rejected no matter what they've experienced in their personal life or what else they may teach. We're to flee from them as fast as we can. We need to be alert. Constant vigilance is our defense against those who would enslave us to a false gospel, which is not a gospel at all, because the gospel means good news. And there's nothing good about people who would enslave us or continue to enslave us to the bondage of the law when we've been freed by God's grace. I say, in closing, praise God for his word that helps us understand the difference between the two. Father, thank you for this time. I thank you for those who are here. I thank you for your word and for the spirit of God which lives within us, those who have come to faith and trust in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. God, I thank you for your law that brings about an understanding of sin and our guilt before you that leads to repentance, a turn from sin and a turn to God. I thank you for your love for us and even when we're in rebellion against you, you sent the Lord Jesus Christ to die upon the cross, to raise him from the dead, so that we who would believe and trust and by faith in him and him alone could become children of God to those who believe in his name. I thank you for your Holy Spirit who you give to us, not only as a down payment that your promises are true, but also to teach us and guide us into your truth, that as we study and learn your word, your spirit bears witness with our spirit of the truth of God and not only of what we learn, but that we too are children of God. God, we thank you that you tell us that we can know with certainty these things that we discussed that we can know by the evidence, by the fruit that we see. God, help us to become more alert as fruit inspectors. And we thank you that you warn us clearly of these dangers. In Christ's name, amen.